Good morning, Four Corners. Praise God that we get to sing these kinds of songs. I hope that it is a, a delight for you. And, you know, we, have any, we, we still have the solid rock left, so there's still more. I, I just want to thank the Lord for uh, our, the people who lead us in worship, our band and sound team and everyone uh, who, makes, uh, who is so intentional. I just want to reassure all of you that our band is so intentional in magnifying the Lord in our worship. They've gone to conferences, very serious, rich conferences, not silly ones, that emphasize the need to make God central in worship and, and, to, make, and to, to introduce substantive songs. And so we've just already sung so much theology, uh, even as we've come to this point. I remember hearing uh, uh, an interview that Mark Dever did with Keith Getty, and you, many of you have heard uh, of Keith and Kristen Getty, In Christ Alone is... That they're probably most famous song that they have done. And Mark Dever was just interviewing Keith Getty, and we're talking about the importance of congregational singing and the effect that music has in the lives of the people of God and the way that uh, good, substantive Christian music stirs the heart, stirs the affections for God, and is used by God, much as the Psalms were for the people of God for many years and still are, stirs the affections uh, in our hearts for God. So let's not take this for granted. Praise God that we have uh, this gift in these songs and in these individuals who lead us each week to worship our Creator and Redeemer. If you would please go with me in your Bibles to Genesis 21. Genesis 21, verses 22 to 34. Abraham is now a father, but Even more specifically, he is a father of the child of promise. He's been a father now for about 16 or so years, between 14 and 16 years, roughly in that that range of time. But now he is a father. As we come to uh, out of the previous section, now he is a father of the child of promise. This is the child, Isaac. He laughs, uh, the child of human impossibility and divine power. God has shown himself great. He has magnified himself in doing the impossible. God has given a barren woman, a child in her old age. Not only has she been barren, she was barren when she was younger, but uh, how much more when she's 90? And God has given her a child in her old age and barrenness and has given Abraham a child at 100 years years old. An incredible testimony to the power of God. Isaac is now at least two or three years old as we come to the end of chapter 21. He's uh, been born and he has been weaned. And now we're in a situation where the potential rivals to Isaac have been removed. We've talked uh, at the end last week about two potential rivals in the household of Abraham. Two that that could have, have sort of uh, been put up as the, the heir of Abraham and the conduit of all of God's promises. And Lot, of course, being his nephew, whom he raised as a son when Lot's father had died uh, years before. And then Ishmael, who is Abraham's, technically speaking, Abraham's oldest son, though not the son of promise, though not the son through his wife, Sarah. 
So these two guys, Lot and Ishmael, these potential rivals, have been removed. Cared for by the Lord, yes, but nonetheless removed, both of them. And the threats to his birth have been overcome. We've had two rivals and two big threats. Uh, First, there was Pharaoh. Remember, uh, Abraham goes into Egypt and he tells this lie, this this half lie, still a lie, half lies are still lies, that his uh, wife Sarah is just his sister. And so Pharaoh takes her into his palace. And we saw basically the same thing happen with Abimelech. But in each of those instances, we saw God show up and afflict those two rulers so that Sarah remained undefiled. And so God has been working through this very complex story of over 20 some, of 20 some years to eliminate the rivals and to overcome the obstacles to the seed. Going all the way back to Genesis 3, the promise of the seed of the woman who would undo the fall and crush the devil. Pointing us to Christ, the ultimate descendant of Isaac. But now, Moses, the author of Genesis, takes us back to this character Abimelech, this random guy that we read about back in the previous chapter. And the function of this narrative, what we're going to look at today, probably not the most exciting passage of Scripture that you've come across. Uh, I will confess, not the most exciting passage of Scripture I've come across. What we find at the end of chapter 21. Why is it that Moses is uh, introducing this story? And why is he introducing this story here? The function of this narrative in this particular place has been the subject of debate. So some have said that what we're about to read and look at today is nothing more than filler material. But we have already seen that there is no filler material in the Bible. All those genealogies that we've read. And all of the rich theology that comes in genealogy that we've seen as we've gone through Genesis so far. Some have, nevertheless, said that this is really just filler material that is standing between Isaac's birth and the sacrifice story of chapter 22, right? The sacrifice of the son Isaac really needs a, you need a little bit of a buffer. He's been born and and then he's just immediately going to be sacrificed. So this is a little bit of a buffer narrative, to uh, provide a transition for these two big high point stories and, and help the narrative to have the effect it's meant to have in chapter 22. So this is what some have said. But I think this story is here for two major reasons. So let me give these to you. and We'll, we'll kind of walk through it. We'll see this in more detail. But two major reasons why this story is here. First, it completes the picture of the fulfillment by tying together offspring and land. Now remember, all along in this journey with Abraham, we've been walking with Abram who became Abraham. We've been walking along this 20-some year journey watching God work in his life. And the two big ideas that we have repeatedly encountered have been land and offspring. These are the pivot points really for all the promises, land and offspring and how the two come together perpetually. And so I think what this narrative does is it ties together with the birth of Isaac, the offspring, the land. It ties that in with Isaac. And we'll see that a little more in a moment. And I'll talk about what that 
what I'm referring to there. So that's the first reason. The second is that it strengthens the impact of what God will call Abraham to do in the next chapter. In a sense, what we're meant to get after, as, we in, as we exit chapter 21, I mean, what has God done for this man? By the time we get to the end of chapter 21, he has given him the child of promise. He has lovingly and kindly removed Ishmael and cared for him and offered all kinds of promises to Abraham that Ishmael's gonna be cared for. He's brought back peace into Abraham's home. This is important. Now there's peace centered around this offspring. And now at the end of chapter 21, we get this kind of picture of peace and stability in the land. All of this really paints a a picture of welfare and comfort and stability for Abraham. And then chapter 22 comes just crashing into that. So I think it's meant to set the context for the significance of what God is doing in chapter 22 and the significance of Abraham's obedience to God in being willing to do it and his trust in God. So the title for the sermon this morning as we come to this maybe obscure passage is The Prosperous Patriarch. And if you will, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. The Prosperous Patriarch. Genesis 21 Verses 22 to 34. This is God's perfect and profitable word. By the way, just want to put another plug in there for The God Who Speaks. It's a, it's a, um, a video that you can watch which talks all about the scriptures and the, the uh, reliability of the scriptures and a theology of scripture and why we should look to the scriptures and trust in them as we trust God, the author of them. So this is God's word. Verse 22, at that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech. And the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Let me go ahead and read the first two verses of chapter 22. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So that's where we're headed as we come to this passage and what it's setting the stage for. You can go ahead and be seated. Let's go to the Lord 
in prayer and ask for his blessing on our time together as we sit under, very important, we sit under God's word. Our Father in heaven, Lord, would you be glorified today through preaching, through the remainder of our service, through the singing of these rich songs of praise, through the affirmation of faith and the Lord's Supper, through the benediction and even the announcement that will follow about the progress of our building. Father, we ask that we, your people, would see you in your greatness, that we would love you because of who you reveal yourself to be and because you have shown us your love. Father, we, we recognize that you reveal yourself to us through the Bible. And we see all around the world in false religions and cults of various kinds that man's heart and man's imagination and man's concept of God is utterly corrupt at the core Father, we create idols daily and then we bow down and worship them in self-righteousness and pride. Idols whose standards we can keep before whom we do not have to stand in judgment. Father, we pray for your forgiveness for all of the idols that we have exalted above your glory. Father, we thank you that in your Bible we find the truth about who you are. That all of our imaginations are put down into the dirt. All of our speculations are thrown down. All of our feelings about what you must be like are usurped by the power and authority of your revelation. And so, Father, even in a story like this, with an individual we know very little about, uh, are not, perhaps too interested in, Abimelech. But even in this situation, this story, you would magnify your character as we see so much here about you, about how you care for your people. And that we would see you for who you are through this narrative. We would leave here today 4,000 years later trusting that you are the everlasting God, that you are the same with Abimelech and Phicol and Abraham there then that you are now. And God, that we would trust you as the God who you reveal yourself to be. We thank you for this time in your word and we pray that you would prick us to the heart, that you would teach us your ways, that you would point us to Christ, the satisfaction of your wrath and our covering our Redeemer, and Father, that you would point us to the life in the Spirit that we are now called to, those of us who belong to Jesus. We pray for any among us who are not converted, who do not know you, God. We know that you have to shine the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into the heart. You have to say, let there be light. Father, we pray that you would do that among us today. We pray that you would say, let there be light in the hearts of those who do not know you. We pray that you would say, let there be light 
in the hearts of our children. God, we know they cannot save themselves. So we earnestly pray to you. We call out to you. We ask you to save our little ones. We ask that you would even save some of them this very morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see Abraham's prosperity here in three focal points as we come to consider the prosperous patriarch. By the way, he is the patriarch now. He is the father of a growing nation. It's just a little boy right now, but he is now we can properly consider him the patriarch as he has had the son of promise. And now the nation will begin to grow and develop. Isaac will have Jacob. Jacob will have 12 sons. Those 12 sons will have many, and those many will become the Israelites. And out of those Israelites, through the tribe of Judah, will come the Christ. And through the Christ, the blessing of Abraham will go to all the world, as those who trust in Christ, the seed of Abraham, become the offspring of Abraham in Christ. All of that goes back to the patriarch and the birth of Isaac. So we see Abraham's prosperity here in three focal points, and you'll see these. These are the three points for the sermon today. You'll see these in your bulletin. Three, three prosperity focal points. The worry, the well, and the worship. So let's just walk through each of these. First, the worry. Look with me again at verses 22 to 24. At that time, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. So what's going on here? What we have is a concerned ruler. That's what we have. We have a, a stressed out king. This king, Abimelech, is anxious to make peace with this foreigner, with this sojourner. And he is worried about what may happen if he doesn't. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my posterity, my future, future children, and my kingdom if I don't make peace with this nomadic sojourner, this foreigner in the land. Why? Why does he care so much? Why is he worried so much about making some kind of peace with this man? Well, the main answer is given in Abimelech's first sentence to Abraham. That's the reason why he knows that he must make peace with this guy. And this is what he says. God is with you in all that you do. He recognizes this as a fact, as a reality. God is with this man, Abraham. And therefore, Abimelech needs to make peace with him. Abimelech has seen so much about God already in just a short space of time. He has seen the power protection, and provision of Abraham's God. Now, there's no indication that Abimelech is anything other than a pagan. He worships many gods. Who knows which gods he worships? But he at least knows that the God of Abraham is powerful and that he protects and that he provides for Abraham. He has seen this back in chapter 20, verse 3. 
God came to Abimelech in a dream, and this is what he said. Behold, this is God speaking to this man in a dream. Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. No introduction, just you are a dead man because of who you're messing with, essentially. And in verse 6, God said to him, I did not let you touch her. Not only does God come to him and show that he is sovereign over Abimelech, this king, but he explains to him that the reason why Abimelech, in case he's tempted to pat himself on the back, the reason why Abimelech did not touch Sarah is because God, in his sovereign control, was keeping him from it. No, human beings are not free to do whatever they please. There is a sovereign God who stands over even the wills of men. And it is God who kept him from touching her. Then after Abimelech returns, to, returns Sarah to Abraham, we read this. Then Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. In other words, God had not only revealed something to him in a dream, God had struck him with something and had closed all the wombs of the women. God showing himself mighty on Abraham's behalf. And in addition to all of this, he has undoubtedly heard of the birth of Abraham's son in his old age, Some commentators even suggest that maybe uh, Abimelech comes to the weaning feast. Who knows? We don't don't have any of that information, but maybe he he hears about it. I mean, it's a feast. People tend to get invited to a feast. People Abraham has met recently, (coughs) perhaps. But undoubtedly, and especially as we go on, given the language he uses about his posterity, about the future, (coughs) it seems... (coughs) Excuse me. uh, It seems... that he is very much aware of the birth of Abraham's son at 100 years old by his elderly barren wife. So Abimelech knows at least two things about this God. He is to be feared and he is with his people. So Abimelech has at least a basic theology He has a basic understanding of who God is. He is a God who is to be feared, and he is a God who is with his people. And I want to submit to you, these are some of the most basic truths about God that are revealed even through creation. God reveals these things through creation, and especially in his word. Do we recognize these basic truths about God? Do you, do you really, as a, as a Christian, do you really see that God is to be feared? I was reading recently. This kind of language, by the way, is not used, not very popular, even in Christian circles. I was reading a, reading a book, started it a, a week ago, by John Bunyan called The Fear of God. He's the one who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress. And he very expositionally, exegetically unpacks for us the fear of God. And he even explains that Christians in prayer and Christians knowing that we approach God with boldness in the mercy seat. Don't just say, what's up, God? We pray to God as the glorious God to be feared. He is not to just be approached flippantly. Yes, he is Abba, 
And that's the mystery of it, the beauty of it. We never, we never approach him not approaching him as Abba, Daddy. Yet, we never approach him as a God who is not to be feared. We always see him both and. He is Abba and he is Lord God, creator of heaven and earth. And so every time we come to him, we come with these things in mind. Even Abimelech recognizes that and that he is with his people. God is great and God is good. God is great, he is mighty, he is powerful, and he is good in that he is near to his people. Abimelech doesn't just see this mighty God. He sees a God who's caring, who's working in the life of this man, Abraham. Not just sheer power, but power for the sake of Abraham's good. And this, I think, is a reminder to you, Christian, offspring of Abraham. Isn't that incredible to go through this narrative as we have in these last few months and to see our father Abraham? If you are a Christian, you are truly, truly an offspring of Abraham, which means that as you see him on the pages of scripture and you see God's dealings with him, you are seeing a little picture of God's dealings with you, Christian. God is with you in all that you do. You hear that? Let me say that again. Basic truth. God is with you, offspring of Abraham, in all that you do. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God is with you in every nook and cranny of life, in the mundane and the seemingly glorious? God is with you in all that you do. As he grows you and prospers you in Jesus Christ. How? How is God with you in all that you do? You know, some prosperity preachers look back to Abraham as an example of how we ought to be. So Abraham got all this silver. We should have silver too. And a private jet and a massive mansion with 16 pools or whatever. Because look, Abraham's blessed. Look at all these sheep and oxen and so forth. And so we're, we're the children of Abraham. We're, we're patterned after that. Is that the way it's supposed to be? Is that how we are to understand how we too are prospered like Abraham was? Well, how does the New Testament describe our prospering in all that we do? I think a good text here is 1 Peter 1, 5 to 9. Flies in the face of false prosperity teaching. Listen to this. Language of prosperity couched in the language of suffering. 1 Peter 1, 5 to 9. We're considering God being with us in all that we do, prospering us as he did Abraham. How? By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by faith. It's like a, like a cage over your heart. In this, you rejoice. You've been given joy in the heart. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, listen, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Heart filled with joy, heart 
filled with love, guarded by faith. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. That's what it looks like to prosper. That's prosperity. And notice it is laced with the language of suffering, trials of various kinds. Maybe it's sickness that you don't need to be healed from. Maybe it's the death of loved ones. Maybe it is various relationship issues, things that are in your life that God is sovereignly using through those trials to test your faith and refine it like gold so that at the coming of Christ, your joy and your love will be complete. This is what it looks like to prosper as a descendant of Abraham, not to have a lot of silver or a private jet. But Abimelech also knows something else about Abraham, that he is quick to deceive, okay? So Abimelech recognizes that Abraham, God is with this man. But he also recognizes, and this is the irony of it, that Abraham is, has been, at least from Abimelech's standpoint, a deceiver. I mean, Abraham lied to Abimelech about his wife, Sarah. We read about that in chapter 20. And I think this gives us an irony here that God is glorified in his faithfulness even when we are faithless. Notice that. We sometimes may think we're called, yes, to glorify God in all that we do. But we sometimes are tempted to think that God somehow needs us to be glorified. That God somehow needs our right choices in order to be glorified. And that God's glory is somehow depleted or waiting around on us to do something so that he'll be magnified and glorified. No, God is glorified in the earth no matter what. He invites us to be a means of that, that we might delight in his glory in the heart. He doesn't need us. He didn't need to make us. He didn't need to save us. He doesn't need our praise. He needs nothing from us. He is fully satisfied, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in perfect union and love, from eternity to eternity. But he chooses to glorify himself through us. And what we see with Abraham is God being glorified here, even in the midst of his folly. I mean, you might think that in the relationship between Abimelech and Abraham, that uh, Abraham blew it as far as being a witness to Abimelech. I mean, what kind of witness does Abraham have with this guy? Yet, he has had a witness, not because of anything he's done, but because of all the glory that God has heaped on Abraham in Abimelech's sight. God has shown himself great, even in human folly. And we have seen, I know, that God does the same in our lives. Turns it to his praise. So Abimelech wants a treaty. Abraham has deceived him in the past, and now he wants a treaty. One in which Abraham and his descendants will not deal falsely with him and his descendants as he did in the past. One in which Abraham will show the same kindness that was shown to him. Let me read back in chapter 20, verses 14 to 16, what Abimelech did in response to the dream from God and, and Abraham's deceit. Chapter 20, verses 14 to 16. You can flip back and look at it if you'd like. 
Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you. And before everyone, you are vindicated. So we see that Abimelech has been kind with Abraham in the past. And now he wants Abraham to be kind with him into the future. And Abraham agrees to this request. He will make a treaty. He will swear an oath. He will establish a covenant with Abimelech. And that leads us to our next point, which is the well. So we've looked at the worry, the worry of this ruler, the worry of this king. And now we come to the well. So look at verses 25 to 32. Verse 25, when Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. You can just kind of hear the frustration with Abimelech. He's had some frustrating encounters with Abraham. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. These verses describe the treaty made between Abimelech and Abraham. (coughs) Abraham takes the initiative in giving animal gifts of sheep and oxen to Abimelech, and the two of them swear an oath. That's a summary of what we have here, this gift that initiates this covenant, this treaty from Abraham. He gives it to Abimelech, and then we have the mutual swearing of an oath to each other along the lines that have already been described. But at the center of this treaty is a well, kind of right there in the middle of it. The well serves as a catalyst for the making of the covenant. Abraham complains that Abimelech's servants have stolen a well that he dug. This is a great time for Abraham to lodge this complaint. Perhaps it's been some time and he's been trying to figure out how to do it. And now Abimelech comes to him and says, look, God, it's with you in all that you do. I just want us to be friends. Basically is what he's saying. And now everyone, well, now that we're talking about friendship, let me tell you about this well that has been taken from me. I dug it. It's been stolen from me by your servants. I've been robbed. Abimelech says he has heard nothing of this matter up to this point. And from everything we've seen so far with Abimelech, that seems to be the case, seems to be true. He's heard nothing of what's happened to Abraham's well. And then Abraham proceeds to establish a covenant between the two of them. By giving these animals. So the well acts as a catalyst. But it is also the focus of the memorial. You'll notice at the end of this passage that the the place name Beersheba. Well what it means and you'll see this in your ESV Bible. Is well of the oath or well of seven. And so the place itself Beersheba is named after the treaty. The covenant the oath taking between the two of these men. And concerning the well itself, Abraham offers what appears to be seven additional ewe lambs, 
as a testimony that the well belongs to him. Notice that. We have the giving of sheep and the giving of oxen just as part of the general covenant between Abimelech and Abraham. But we also have this giving. It seems that there's this additional gift, or maybe some are set apart, but it appears that there's this additional gift of seven ewe lambs to Abimelech as a testimony that he, in fact, dug this well, that the well belongs to him. Abimelech's acceptance of this gift after he asks what they mean shows that he affirms that the well belongs to Abraham. Notice that. Abraham gives the gift to him. He accepts the gift after asking what it means and that is a kind of vindication of Abraham's ownership of this well. So most of you right now are thinking, okay, we're going to move on from this well. Well, that is what is happening. That's central to this portion. We'll see in a moment the significance of the well, but we got to understand what's going on. It's at the center of this narrative. So what's going on here with this treaty and with the well? Both of them. The big picture and the well itself at the center of the treaty. Once again, it points to Abraham's prosperity. And I want to give you three ways that this shows Abraham's prosperity or God's prospering of Abraham, the prosperous patriarch. Three ways that the well itself, couched within the treaty, shows this. First, God gives him peace. This is a local ruler who is taking the initiative to make peace with Abraham. And it is showing that God is making for a peaceful, stable environment for his servant, for his blessed man. Political and social safety and stability. Do you remember back in chapter 15, verse 1? What does God say to Abraham? He says, I am your shield. That is what Abraham is to, that is what God is to Abraham even in this moment. God is giving him safety. He is giving him security by this treaty with the local ruler. And as God promised him in 1515, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. Isn't it amazing that God has already chapters before, years before, promised to Abraham that he's going to die in peace at a good old age. And now even in this seemingly obscure narrative, God is working out the specific details. The details matter. He's working out the details to ensure that Abraham does in fact die in peace. Because of this, even. So that's the first, God gives him peace. The second is that God gives him essential resources. This is most obvious. You need a well living in this kind of environment. You need water. He needs water for himself, for his family, for his little boy, Isaac. He needs water for his herds and his flocks. So God is giving him essential resources. But this, I think, is the most significant. God gives him ownership in the land. Notice this. God gives him ownership in the land as a foretaste of what he is going to give him into the future. This is Abraham's land. This land doesn't belong to you, Abimelech. This land doesn't belong to any of these people. It belongs to God's man, the one to whom God has promised this land and to his descendants. So the well brings together, really, at this point in the narrative, follow this, brings together land and offspring so nicely as we've been walking through the story of Abraham. 
And yet, Abraham is still living as a foreigner and a stranger. Notice that the land, Abimelech, as I read earlier, is his land, he says. And it's just a well in a land where he's a foreigner. But I want to read to you the words from Hebrews chapter 11 about Abraham. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land. This is Abraham's experience. He is always, all these narratives we've been reading, he's a foreigner. He's a sojourner. He's a nomad. He's living in tents. And so it says, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. And then verse 13, this is Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but at this point to us, this may seem big, but imagine Abraham's experience. I would imagine all along this journey with the Lord that Abraham wished that there would be different timing, that God would give more to him early rather than later, that God would do things according to his timing, his own timing, Abraham's timing. But what we see here is God is taking care of Abraham, but he is doing it in accordance with his wisdom. He doesn't go ahead and give him the land. He gives him this little well as a picture of what he's going to give him and his descendants after him, forcing him to live as a stranger and a foreigner, as a man following the promise, as a man of faith. And that's what we see. God is blessing Abraham externally, yes, but even more. This is the journey of a heart of faith. When we watch Abraham's story, we see God's dealings with Abraham. What's most significant there is that God is shepherding his heart of faith. That's far more important than anything else. And I would submit to you that that is what God is doing, as we read from 1 Peter, in your life. He is shepherding your faith, just as he did Abraham. Now, as we finish up, let's take a look at Abraham's response to this interaction with Abimelech. But let me just make one implication before we do that, before we go on to the worship. One implication for us that is worth noting is that God is showing his people here that they are to make peace with others in the world. How is it that we live in the midst of a crooked world? How is it that we live in the midst of a world where many people don't know the Lord? My son Jake has gotten in the habit. We've been talking about faith and about believers and unbelievers. And he very frequently, as we'll go out, he'll ask, Daddy, is that person a believer? Daddy, is that person a believer? We drove up to a church one time. We were going to my brother's church in Kentucky. Are these people believers? And so, you know, sometimes that question is hard to answer when you ask me that with specific things. And, but, but he asked me this question. Are these people believers? And it tells, it reminds us that we really are oftentimes in a sea of unbelief. I mean, we move through our lives and sometimes in certain spheres of our lives, we would say that nobody in that sphere of life is a believer. We're the only Christian in that context, in that sphere of life. How are we to live among pagans? How are we to live among unbelievers? And I think we here just have an implication for us with this interaction that we are to make peace. We are to be peace 
makers. Romans 12.18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. That's what we're called to do. Not to be annoying Christians. What I mean by that is to be uh, quarrelsome Christians. Christians who are lacking in courtesy, as Paul says in Titus 3.2, who quarrel, who are not gentle, who are forceful and mean-spirited, and I would say even judgmental, rightly understood, and on a personal level. But rather, people who make peace in the truth of the gospel, speak the truth in love, don't shy away from those things that are true that we need to speak to or stand up for, yet at the same time seeking peace with everyone in our sphere of life. So now finally we come to the worship. We have the worry, we have the well, and now we come to the worship. It's my favorite, really my favorite part of this passage. Verses 33 to 34 as we finish up. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. Now Abimelech and his general are gone, made their peace treaty, and they've left. By the way, it's an interesting little little observation here that Abimelech comes with his general, which tells us that he really does have a high regard for this man Abraham seeing him as a major player, politically speaking, in the area. But now, as we come to the end, Abimelech and his general are gone. They have returned home to the land of the Philistines. Now, the Philistines, which we'll meet much more later, especially with David and uh, Goliath, that period as we enter into uh, 1 Samuel. But what we have here with the Philistines are a people who have come from the Aegean Sea, from the area of Crete, and they have come to Palestine. And this is kind of an early wave of the Philistine migration to Palestine. Now they have gone back to the land of the Philistines in Palestine. And it is just Abraham and his God. They are gone. Now Abraham alone with his God. And as he has done many times, he calls there on the name of the Lord. He plants a tamarisk tree as a memorial. If Beersheba is a memorial to the treaty between men, this tree is a memorial to the covenant faithfulness of God. So why a tree? Well, a tree serves as a sign of prosperity. It's a sign of human flourishing. It's a sign of flourishing life. As we see a tree grow, we're seeing it flourish. One that is rich with the presence of the Lord God. A life that is like a tree, rich with God's presence. Rich with God's prospering and flourishing. He has been with Abraham. And he will be with Isaac and all of Abraham's future descendants. Because he is the everlasting God. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And it's interesting as you go back and you you trace all the things that God has said to Abraham up to this point. Only an everlasting God can give an everlasting possession. Because if he's just a temporary deity of some sort, he's gone. How can he ensure an everlasting possession? 
but he has promised Abraham and his descendants an everlasting possession because he's an everlasting God who can hold that possession and give his everlasting presence. So Genesis 17, 8, remember what the Lord says to him. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings and all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Into eternity. And I talked about last week how Jesus says that in the kingdom of God, people will come from all over to recline with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Forever, we will be God's people, the offspring of Abraham, with an everlasting God in an everlasting possession. In some ways... This tree serves as a picture of Abraham himself. God has planted him in this land of promise. And as we finish this morning, I think that reminds us that God has planted us as well. This tree reminds us that Abraham was taken up. Think about it. Taken up out of Ur, out of a pagan context, a family that did not worship the true God. And what's happened? What's this story been all along that we've been reading? It's really the story of a planting. God took this man and he brought, ripped him up out of, he replanted him, ripped him up out of a pagan context and he planted him. He is planting him. He will plant him in the land of promise. And God has planted us in Jesus Christ. We are planted. We are the planting of the Father. So John 15, four to five, Jesus says this, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And as we read in Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 to 8, Mark Grasso preached this passage some time ago. I love these words. The, the Bible will oftentimes describe, Psalm 1 is another example, will describe God's people as trees. And this is what we read in Jeremiah 17. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. Do you trust God this morning? Do you trust the Lord with your life, with your soul? You have to trust him with your soul. You know, I would, I want to share just very briefly. As you all know, Morgan and Stan Solon are in the hospital right now. Morgan had some complications after her uh, delivery. And the Lord is with them, and it's been a blessing to, to see that. And things are moving in a good direction. Pray for them. And I'm sure many of you know about that. But it was amazing. The other day when I talked to her, Morgan said, that it was in that moment where she literally thought she was going to die and, and very well could have, that she felt such peace in seeing Jesus. 
that she knew she was going to see Jesus and she would not want me to share this, but I have to share it because that's exactly, that's exactly what God does in the heart that makes us like a tree that we trust him. We trust him with our souls in life and death. We can face death head on because we know that God is who he says he is and that he keeps us. He saved us. He won't leave us and he will usher us into his presence. We can trust in the Lord even and especially in the hour of death. What a test of the truth of our confession when we can stare death in the face and say, it's okay. I trust him. Is that you this morning? Are you ready to die? Are you able to walk through that in God's strength because your heart has been changed? Do you trust this Jesus If you don't trust him this morning, if you are afraid to die, the writer of Hebrews says that that in Christ, the fear of death is put away. You could put your faith in Christ by God's grace and be forgiven of all your sins and be assured that God will usher you into his presence in the hour of your death. It goes on to say, The one who trusts in the Lord is like a tree. That was all a parenthesis. Sorry. It goes on to say, Jeremiah 17, he is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and it is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. By God's grace, Abraham's life of faith was like a tree. And such is the case for each of us who trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in Morgan and Stan's life. We lift them up to you now as we mention them here in our service. And we pray that you would continue to watch over Morgan's body. Lord, we are grateful that you have uh, even graciously allowed her to face such a trying moment and to be reminded of the veracity of the gospel and the truth that you do give us new hearts, hearts that fear you, love you, and trust you. By your grace, you give us new hearts by your spirit where hope reigns supreme. And Father, we just praise you for that. And even in, the, even in these negative situations, how you are glorified through the grace you have put into the hearts of your people as it is manifested to them and to the rest of us. We praise you. And Father, we thank you for this word today from the Holy Scriptures. We thank you for this reminder that you are a God who prospers your people, that you were with Abraham and that you were... You were fulfilling all of your promises to him and that you are with us and you are prospering us even though we may not feel it, even though our lives may be difficult and various trials right now may be on our backs. We know that you are prospering us in Jesus Christ and you are guarding our faith for that future glory. Father, help us trust you in in all of this. Thank you for your word today. We praise you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time in our service, we will have the Lord's Supper. And um, we just ask those who are serving to go ahead and come forward.
This is a time where we remember that it is only through the blood of Christ that we have the promises that are fulfilled. Uh, The promises to Abraham are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And uh, in Jesus, all the promises of God are yes. And we know that we access those promises of God in Jesus through the cross, through His blood that covers us. And it's only on that rock that we stand, as we're going to sing in a moment. So at this point in our service, we remember the atoning death of Christ, what He did in giving up His body and His blood to save us, to cover our sins and give us eternal life. So as you come forward this morning, please uh, uh, pray to the Lord that He would govern your mind that this this wouldn't just be a routine or ceremony, but that you would come forward praying to him in faith, examining your heart, confessing sin, and putting your trust back in him as your heavenly father. And if you're not a believer this morning, we are glad you're here. We would love to talk with you more about the gospel of Jesus, but we would ask that you not participate in this. This is not just a ceremony. As I said before, this is a real profession of what we have come to believe as Christians. So if you'll be Partaking, come when you're ready.